I'm going to be reading this morning from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, as we continue in our series looking at the questions that people asked Jesus and the questions he asked back to them in his resurrected form. If you happen to have a journaling Bible like me, it's on page 909. If you don't have one of those, you're going to have to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So the disciples are asking Jesus what's next. And it's interesting to me, at least, and I hope to you also, to notice the way that they're holding their expectations up to Jesus. You know, expectations, especially when they become conditional, can become very troubling. Religion is oftentimes expectations plus religious activities as long as God will deliver. And yet we have expectations. It's not like we can just stop having them of other people and of God. And yet faith and following Jesus can be either... How I want to say that can be very troubled or ill-served by expectations, especially when we're not aware of them, and especially expectations that have conditions with them. You know how they sound, right? Lord, I'll serve you as long as. Jesus, I'll worship you if you will. God, I'll love you with my activities and my emotions as long as you're like this and as long as you're not like that. God, I'll prioritize you as long as my life looks a certain way. And the disciples, it's not odd that they have this expectation of Jesus. They longed for him to restore Israel to its nation-state status. At the time, there were both insider belligerents, like the rulers that you hear about, like Herod, there are the, the Sadducees, who were very troubling to followers of Jesus, like the disciples, and they were occupied by the Roman Empire. So you see these religious figures throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. It's because they were an occupied country. So it's not weird. It's not silly. It's not wrong for the disciples to have this expectation to Jesus. But when they hold it up to him, we notice the opportunity we have, which is to hold our expectations up to him with an open hand. Because he is God and we are not. And we notice what happens after They hold their expectations up to Jesus, and by the way, he says no. He says it in sort of clevery Jesus language, so it doesn't come across as harshly as no. But he doesn't restore the kingdom. He does something far more broad and profound. Do you know the story of the 12 disciples and where they went? We know a lot more about Peter and John than the rest of them, but we hear their stories and have some historical records of Philip going south, Thomas going east, Peter going into Europe, 
John going into Asia Minor and telling people about Jesus so much so that, and I've made this joke before, I don't know if you think it's a good joke, you're welcome to email me, but it's so, it would be so interesting to try and explain to Peter, whose name was not very common at the time, that people now name their children Peter and their dog Caesar. That's how much the 12 of you will change the world. I wonder if the word billion, if there's even an equivalent for a first century Jewish follower of Christ. There are over two billion people today that say they're followers of Christ. How much would that have blown the disciples' mind, most of whom never worshipped with more than about 40 people? The church I grew up at in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, First United Methodist, the only sermon series I ever remember, like what it was about, was the series on the 12 disciples. And I'm a little nervous that I'm going to run into the old pastor. I believe he's still alive, and he, he's going to find out that I'm a pastor. He's going to ask me what it was like to go to, and he's going to ask me something specific, and I'm just going to not know. But I do remember the disciples series, and part of the reason is they had these giant oil paintings. I don't know where they got these, of the disciples that made them sort of look like mariners or Greek gods. They always had a tunic on and flowing silvery black hair, and they were, there was wind involved, you know. But the disciples have this expectation that Jesus is going to restore Israel, and yet as Jesus says no, they continue to follow him and it's not overstating it to, to say that the world was and is forever changed by their following him. There are good expectations too. I'm continually struck by the number of times Jesus says when we follow him non-metaphorically, we receive a reward in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, especially in prayer. There are good expectations. We are to expect that the Holy Spirit assure us of God's love. That is part of what the Holy Spirit does, and we are to expect that. We are to expect growth in character. As a follower of Christ, we expect to become better at worshiping God and loving the neighbors that God has put into our lives. And yet, it's good to have an open hand with our expectations as we place them in front of Jesus, which I'm speaking metaphorically. And we go in and out of times and seasons. Jesus is speaking about his return a little bit here, and he's also saying to the disciples, those things are going to change in your life. Your expectations are going to change. You continue to put them in front of him. I was reading an article this week, and I was very, it was very sad. In it, uh, the man who grew up Christian and professed faith in Jesus into his 20s, when his wife divorced him, said God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And he has since created kind of an amalgam faith. And what was so sad to me was that statement. This is not a bargain. We are not bargaining in what we do, followers of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that his story is not horrific. I don't know it. The point of the article was not to tell his story. It was actually to talk about this amalgam faith that he's sort of invented for himself. But, so there's all the horribleness of that. But then there's the way that you're approaching God is wrong if he is expected to hold up a bargain or an expectation that isn't straight from his word. So they asked Jesus what's next, and in, in kind language and to teach them other things, Jesus answered, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. No, at this time I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. I'm actually going to do something far broader in scope through you, 12 men. It was 11 at the time, but they appointed another one. I keep saying 12 because that's the number we have for disciples. At the time, 11. 
and it won't seem big. It's one of the things that if we allow our imaginations to picture Philip walking to Africa, Thomas to India, Peter going into Rome, they never worshipped in large churches. They never saw anything other than Christianity being illegal. They never saw large groups, with the exception of Acts 2, really come to faith. And that dissipated in what they could see. It didn't dissipate in terms of the church, but the disciples never got to see, and yet here we are with literally billions of people claiming faith in Jesus. Let me come back for a second to expectations, and I have to ask you a tough question. I should typically do these in my second point of my sermon. I already put the emoji up a couple years ago, and my wife said I could only use it once. The one, you know the emoji, the best one. The, it's the best one. Never makes anybody feel better, but you understand what I'm saying. When has God told you no? You have an expectation, or you're going to do life this way, and his word through a friend, through actual studying scripture, has corrected you. Because here's the thing, if he's never told you no, you're not worshiping him, you're worshiping yourself. And I say that because we both live in a broken world and have false self-tendencies that guide us away from lives of life. You have some good tendencies, but you also have some bad tendencies. And the teaching of, of the Lord corrects us in that and leads us into a flourishing life that we would never choose on our own. Is it to take a day off? I'll pick an easy one first. It's actually, it's odd how challenging it is to take a day off in our culture that is so enamored with diversion and even has, believes in weekends and is fond of them. It is still hard for us to take a one day off in seven. Many of us. Some of you are like, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Good for you. For many of us, it's challenging to take a day off. Most of the time, if I succeed on my day off, which starts after church ends on Sunday, it goes into Monday, if I succeed in not checking my email, I'll start to develop a little bit of anxiety. And I know that it's anxiety related to keeping the Sabbath because if I check my email, it goes away. That's a part of my false self that the Lord is maturing when I trust in Him, probably anyway, but when I trust in Him. What about generosity? Jesus spoke regularly about our tendencies towards greed. Have you leaned into that? What about forgiveness? We're so tempted when someone hurts us to just run away from the relationship forever. And yet, it is essential, and sometimes we need boundaries in relationships. Oftentimes we do. But that comes after releasing the other person from the pain they have caused us. And when we do not understand that and can't do it, we aren't actually followers of him. We don't actually understand the forgiveness of Christ. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. When has God told you no and you've trusted and leaned into that? That's a way of holding our expectations with an open hand and then trusting him that he knows a better way. Perhaps it's to honor your father and mother. Perhaps it's another command of Scripture. Your questions reveal expectations, and that's good. It would be bad if you had no questions. It would be bad if you had no expectations. It would be bad if you have no doubts. It would be bad if you have no troubles. Throughout this series, uh, looking especially at the questions and the conversations Jesus had with the disciples after the resurrection, we deal a lot with expectations and troubles and doubts, and I'm kind of, kind of contextually define them. Doubts is things we're not sure if we believe that that's true. Troubles are things we believe that are true, but we're bothered by them still. 
and expectations are the things we were hoping religion would do for us. We bring all of those before Jesus, but with an open hand. And what happens? We receive power. I, lo- I love that word. And part of the reason I love it is it's right there in Scripture. The other part of it is oftentimes because we so desire control, most of the time, if not especially in our weaker moments, in our desire for control and in our, abil- in our lack of ability to ever control anything in our life. A couple of years ago, I preached a sermon on this and I mentioned that I could control my dog. That was a different dog than the dog I have now. Now I can't even control my dog. He's a very sweet dog, but he only listens sometimes. Anyway, in our desire for control, which I believe is a mixed desire, we notice we have no control, and yet you have been given immense power. Do you know that? You could get up right now and walk out of this room, and that would negatively affect me, believing that I was not preaching a compelling sermon. Regardless of how compelling it actually is, you have power. You could stand up and start shouting at me. That would be interesting. Please don't. You know this. You have been given money. And I know it doesn't feel like this, but the money only goes places when you tell it to. I know it doesn't feel that way. I know it feels like there are all these places that demand it and you have to give it or they'll come take the car away or whatever. But you have money. And it is part of your ability to exert power in and around where you are. And followers of Jesus place their words and their stuff and their silences and their money and their gifts, they hold them up to him with an open hand expecting the Holy Spirit to do good and kingdom work through the power that he has given us. In the same way that that Jesus sent out the disciples to witness for him, he sends us out as witnesses for him. They asked Jesus about what's next. It was a politically charged question. And he answered, and he answered about their role. And the disciples do not know what to do next. Are you ever thrown off by the fact that they go fishing? It's because they weren't sure what to do. They weren't giving up on Jesus. They weren't turning their backs on him. They still loved him, but they were very confused. And this resurrection stuff was brand new to them. And they don't know what to do as followers. And they're also thrown off by Je- Jesus has gone so mellow at this point. You know? Have you ever know I keep pointing this out in sermons. I don't know if you were here last week or not. Uh, I know some of you were and some of you were visiting, but I wonder if the disciples over the 40 days that Jesus spent with them after he rose from the dead are like, where's the Jesus who turns over the tables? Where is the Jesus who speaks to nature and it listens? Where's the Jesus that yelled at the Pharisees for at least 10 minutes, calling them all sorts of names that I didn't know as followers of Jesus we could use? Where is the Jesus who raised people from the dead? When Jesus does anything miraculous in the resurrection, it's pretty mellow, even flying into heaven, compared to some of the things he did in his earthly life. And the reason is Jesus is now moving from being their rabbi to being the one who they follow, but now they are the witnesses of the kingdom life that's available to people. They're now the ones that get to, by their very lives, witness to the grace and mercy of Jesus. They were reconciled to God because of his sacrifice. They were called away from a life of death into a life of life. The disciples were nervous about their role. Are you confident in yours? A couple of encouragements for you. 
I have no idea. Can't read your faces. I feel like I used to be able to in the Midwest. I was probably wrong. But you New Englanders keep it a little closer to the vest, which is fine. It's really fine. It does throw me off sometimes standing up here and I'm speaking and I'm like, what's happening between my voice and their ears? Luckily, Mr. Rogers said, true story, the land between my lips and your ears is the Holy Spirit's. Ooh, Mr. Rogers was... Anyway. Are you confident in your role? Are you confident in, in, in where God has placed you as a worshiper of him, as one who has work to do, regardless of vo- your vocation, of one who has neighbors to love well? Are you confident in your role? It's one of the most profound and clear expectations we have of the Holy Spirit because it is promised to give us confidence in our role. If you're confident in your role, vocationally, Christianly, worshipfully, and neighborly, praise God for that. There's a sermon application for you. Over the next week, if you're confident in where God has you, that is a gift, a sweet gift. If you're not confident, ask Jesus for confidence in where God has placed you in what he has asked you to do and in the people that he's put in your life. Even if you're going to quit your job on Tuesday with the Holy Spirit's power, we're confident on Monday in what we are to do. Some of you wonder about your calling. You have gifts that exceed your current job or gifts that don't fit well in the current situation that you're in, or perhaps you're looking at a situation where the, mon- the, the money is different. And, and I've said this before, but I, I think it's worth revisiting. And as the, Jesus is commissioning the disciples and telling them that they're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, I want to remind us what we do with our calling and what our calling is. You're called not only to a relationship with God. You are also called into a kingdom life with Him where you have a role in that. And I sometimes struggle with how to explain this because I don't want to sound like you have work to do to merit something before God. That is not true at all. There's no work that you can do that will merit a reconciled relationship with God. That's all Jesus. And yet, when Jesus calls you to himself, he not only calls you away from a life of death, he not only gives you peace of knowing that you're known by God, he has a role for you to play in the kingdom. And in exploring that role, we hold up to God as best we can our gifts and our circumstances and our affections. And understanding each one is important to us knowing what are we called to do in the kingdom? What are we called to do in our local church? What are we called to do in the families we were born into? What are we called to do in our neighborhoods? What are we called to do vocationally? And some of you are retired. It is work to be retired both to serve in the places you choose to serve in and to continue to be generous with what you have and how much that has changed since retirement. It's perhaps even harder work than some of our vocations. So if you're curious about your calling, if you're confident in your calling, remember to thank God for that. If you're curious about your calling, hold that up to Jesus. What do I do with my circumstances, gifts, and affections? And you need other voices in that. You're not the best assessor of your gifts. You know that, right? You might be pretty good, but you need other people to say, yes, I'm good at that. No, I'm not. I picked up a guitar this morning before worship service. Anyone who was in the room at the time would know that that is not one of my gifts. Now, at the same time, affections matter. And if I love to play guitar, perhaps I should take lessons or at least play it more than once a year. 
But circumstances matter too. At different points in our life, we might be gifted in running, and we might love it, but we're 80. And our, our body will not do that the same way that it would. All three of those things matter. And there's a point that, that comes alongside this. Regardless of where you are in life, whether you are 14 or 94, while you're still with us, follower of Jesus, you have a role as a worshiper of God who has a specific calling within the kingdom. And that is as a witness. And, and witness is such an important word. And we need to talk a little bit about what it does not mean. Witness is a bigger term than evangelism. One of my a pretty, good, a pretty good friend of mine has told me on multiple occasions that they don't feel confident in their evangelism. And yet, I know this person and the field they work in, and they're excellent at it. Excellent. She's a nurse, and she's an excellent nurse. And it is a witness to Christ. Now, can evangelism happen without words? Probably not. But witness is a larger term. And followers of Jesus witness to ourselves and everyone else through everything that we do and don't do. Through how we teach or work at Ensign Bickford or sell things or act as a CPA or a teacher or a contractor. How we do that work and how we interact with people. I often think that Christian engineers express a phenomenal witness when they're in meetings. Because most of the engineers that I have met want to do engineering. They don't want to be in meetings. And so I'm, and I'm guessing, you probably have picked up on this by now, I don't have hardly any engineer instincts or gifts or circumstances in my body. But I know a number of engineers who are gifted, and so now they lead teams, and it drives them nuts. But as followers of Jesus, they use their words for good, they're encouraging and affirming. They still hold people accountable, but they do so in a loving and Christ-like way. Your witness is made up of all that you do with your words and with your time and with your money, with your rest, which is an important part of being a follower of Jesus. Witness is an opportunity. is isn't a responsibility either. We need to remember this. God is God. We follow and trust him not because when we do it, this will happen, but because that's a life. That is the life of life that is available to us. Doesn't mean that we don't evangelize. Certainly doesn't mean that, but witness is a larger term. They asked Jesus, what's next? He answered them, and he talked about their role, and then he talked about the future. How many of you feel really confident in your eschatology? You're like, I've got it down. I've nailed it. Okay, I have great news for you. Many of you have a very mature eschatology. Do you guys know the word eschatology? So apocalyptic means uncovering. So crockpot. We don't know what's in there. <gasps> it's roast. Oh, I love roast. Probably French onion soup was utilized in that. That's an apocalyptic moment. Okay? Eschatology, it is. It's a good one too, right? You guys like roast? I love roast. Anyway. Eschatology is the end times. That's what the two men were referring to when they said, this Jesus will return again. When this age, 
will end, and the new heavens and the new earth will either begin or will come down right then, okay? End times. So eschatology means end times. Ready? So none of you raised your hands. Some of you hopefully feel confident in your eschatology, but no one raised your hands. I'm so excited to tell you this. If you're confident Jesus will return, and you're confident of your role today, then you have a very mature eschatology. So says 1 Thessalonians. So says Zechariah. So says Isaiah, specifically the last 27 chapters of it. So says Ezekiel. So says Daniel. So says the Revelation. So says Mark chapter 13. So hear me again. And it doesn't mean there's not more to study there. Part of the reason I can reference all those scriptures is I'm studying ahead of time for the Revelation series in the fall, which is really stressing me out, but also really beautiful. It's really beautiful. If you're confident that Jesus is going to return and you're confident of your role today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, then your eschatology follower of Jesus is mature. Good job. It doesn't mean the future doesn't make you nervous. It doesn't mean you're not fatigued by life. But it means that when you're considering Jesus and you have some sense through the Holy Spirit's power of his grace, you're confident he's going to return and you're confident in your own role as worshiper with your work and with the neighbors God has put into your life. And there's a lot, there's so much more to say about Jesus' return. There's so much good news there about the restoration of the earth about our stories being told right, about evil being removed. It's already been vanquished, but has not yet been removed. And yet here the reference in Acts chapter 1 is that we're confident that he'll return and confident that in the meantime we have a role as a worshiper of him who have been given gifts and circumstances and affections to use for his glory, the good of neighbor, and our own good. And we're confident in that. Someone asked Martin Luther once what he would do if he knew Jesus was going to return tomorrow. You know what he said? John Hunn loved this quote for those of you who have been at church for a long time. He said, I'd plant a tree. You see? He's confident that Jesus was going to return and he was confident in his work. And he didn't mind not knowing the times and the seasons. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you fill us with sense of your love, with a felt knowledge and assurance of the strength and power that comes with the Holy Spirit through trusting faith in you. And Holy Spirit, would you fill us with confidence in our calling because of your grace, mercy, love, peace, and wisdom giving us the circumstances and gifts and affections that you've given us. Amen.